When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Who's On Worst, your home for all things terrible baseball movie on the D-Rays Bay Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ashley, with me as always, my co-host, Darby Robinson, and of course, on mute because he likes to pretend he's not here, our wonderful producer, Brett Rutherford. And we have a sequel, a sinful sequel to discuss today. Um, and I feel like a lot of the movies we've liked in the past could have had the same pitfalls as this if they existed in sequel format. Um, I feel like if you made, you know, Summer Catch 2, it would have been even worse than the first. And I feel like Fever Pitch 2 would have lost all of the romance and delight of the first one. Um, but today we are just talking about the second movie in a three movie set, and that is Major League 2. Uh, and I think this one's going to encompass a bit of discussion of the first one because we did all watch the first one and then we watched the sequel. Uh, we will reserve most of our complaints for the sequel, which is terrible. Uh, we will not be discussing Major League Three back to the minors, uh, which will uh, unfortunately for us come up in a future episode, uh, but not anytime soon after doing the double feature that is Major League and Major League Two. Uh, so Darby, why don't you tell us a little bit about Major League Two? Yeah, well, if you liked Major League, uh... This is a watered down, more mediocre version of that. Um, the, the synopsis on Rotten Tomatoes, as we always do, uh, basically says the Cleveland Indians, back when they were the, the Indians, and we will definitely get into oh, how yeah. much it's like, Ow. wow, yeah, that was a good change. Good job, Guardians. That's Ooh. a much better change. Uh, the Cleveland Indians... An endearing assortment of oddballs who improbably won the division championships last season have since lost their edge due to personal pursuits and the excesses of fame. Rick Wild Thing Vaughn, Charlie Sheen, does lucrative endorsements, but his killer fastball is gone, while once aggressive slugger Pedro Serrano, played by Dennis Haysbert, has become a laid-back Buddhist. But as the players realize they've all gone astray, they rally for a shot at the World Series. That's a solid uh, uh, synopsis. That is the film. Um, for the first half of the film, it's basically about kind of their fame kind of getting in the way. And this film falls into so many of the, the big issues, especially comedy sequels, which is maybe there's an interesting idea at the start, but that gets quickly crushed either by the creators not really wanting to do a sequel and being forced into it. So they kind of have to just like half-ass it or by the studio being like, we need to hit these notes again, but you just basically get a rehash of the exact same movie again. We saw that with The Hangover. We saw that with Ghostbusters 2. I mean, even on our podcast, Sandlot 2 was... Yeah, it's like this, it's like we are not going to tread 
any new ground. We're not going to try anything different. We're not going to attempt to advance the characters. We're just going to do the same thing, hit the beats and end at the same place as the beginning. And with this movie, I feel like there was kind of a, it's super unnecessary. You don't need to do this film at all. But if you were going to do this film, I think they started with an interesting kernel of an idea that by midway through the film, they've completely abandoned. I think another big problem for this is that the original was R-rated. So there was, you know, F-bombs being dropped and the jokes were a little bawdier and there was a little bit of like sexual humor at the expense of the team's owner with the the talent, like the peel away cutout of her as a showgirl. Um, All stuff that I think was lost when you moved, not that any of that was particularly good, but it did help make that movie, I think, a little bit more engaging and entertaining. And then you move into the sequel, which I believe was rated PG-13. So you have your like one sacred F or S bomb dropped in. I'm sorry, I'm saving Brett the edits because you know I want to say them. Um, But, you know, so they can't swear. They can't have the same kind of sexualized humor. They've got to cut back on it. So they make up for that by amping up the racism and amping up the homophobia, which was not nearly as rampant in the first movie, but by George, they really went for broke on the homophobia in the second movie, like truly. So I was kind of alarmed by that. It's one of those things where no, like, okay. It comes up a lot with like horror movies, right? Where it's like PG-13 is like a death knell because you can't show all the gore, but you can have some really terrifying things that still find their way into PG-13. And it is sort of the same with humor. You don't necessarily have to be R-rated to be funny. However, I do think dropping uh, a rating at this point was PG instead of PG-13 or whatever, but basically dropping that rating really hurts the movie a lot because the humor becomes way dumbed down in a way like it like there's no subtlety at all not that the first one is like a very like highbrow movie it's pretty like crude but like in a charming way whereas this one it's so like you said it's just the weirdest most like overt homophobia and racism and like racial racial caricatures and we'll we'll get into this but maybe i think like one of the best like I think pinpoints, and I, and I watched both of the, both the Major League, I rewatched Major League. I've seen that many, many times. I think I've seen this movie like once before this, and I don't remember liking it at the time, but I've, I've watched Major League dozens of times. I, I find that to be a really charming movie. Um, and so I watched that one, and then I watched this one like back to back. And I think that's what you did too, Ashley. And I think I Brett did the same thing. I watched it a week apart, but it's, it, yeah, ah. close, close enough together that it was very obvious to see a lot of the things that like were going wrong um in in the kind of retelling so the the part i think for me there's a couple of parts that it really goes astray but like i think one like real small element that i think really signifies to me like the biggest the biggest flaw of major league two is in the character of tanaka so obviously it's like the most like i mean like geez breakfast at timothy's eat your heart out with this kind of uh, like horrific Japanese caricature. But basically, you in the first movie, you have a character, you have all of these misfits who are like fitting these like 
like molds and they're kind of cartoon characters in a way, right? And you have Pedro Serrano as the like foreign guy and he's, and he's you know, into this like voodoo stuff and he's all that. However, it doesn't come across nearly as racist as it probably almost should be because of the fact that one, Dana Tasebert is phenomenal and he gives a gravitas to the character and there's actually a character. Like Pedro Serrano, you kind of get like, Yes, Dennis Haysbert is not Cuban. He doesn't have, you know, like this is all just this, you know, caricature of, of that. But it still sort of works really well because there is a character there. You believe this character. And he has like an arc too. And he has an arc. Well, and I, th- I think you also see the respect of his fellow players kind of develop so that he's not the butt of the joke like originally you you know you have like the christian player going hey man i don't want Mm -hmm. any of that nonsense in here but then you get like other guys going with snakes up to the lockers and they're all kind of going along with it in the first one so that he isn't it's there's no jokes punching down at him like any jokes about it are mostly at his own expense or he gets frustrated or like he wants mm-hmm. the chicken and somebody brings him a bucket of chicken and like so it, it's there's no jokes I think that make him seem like lesser as an mm-hmm. element and I think that's why it works like I still thought it was pretty weird and especially to make him seem so changeable in terms of his religion when you would assume that anyone's religion is very important to them and central to like kind of their whole being and for him to just suddenly abandon that and do a whole shift to buddhism in the second movie is is literally just for the jokes and that really bugged me um so I, i think like if you're gonna like make somebody be like into voodoo that's who they are that's how they were raised that's not going to change, especially not after how well things went for him at the end of the previous season. It's like defining character. Like this yeah. is clearly somebody who's like, has, you know, Jobu is the deity that he's been worshiping and he has this connection. And now it's in the off season, basically switching entirely. And, but yeah, then you have the character of Tanaka in this playing the same sort of roles, like the foreign player coming in, but it's, there's no character arc. There's no subtlety. It's just the most... Like, and it's there to play off of, um, you know, Dennis Haysbert's character, Pedro Serrano. It's, it's to play off of that. But like, good Lord. And it felt like he got more screen time, like as much screen time as like Vaughn and uh, Maze Hayes. Like it felt like he was one of the guys that we were focused on. This movie also horribly fails at the fact that, okay, we're bringing back everybody but Wesley Snipes, who was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> Way too big of a star for this piece. And Omar Epps does actually a really good job, I think, in yeah. the character. Like, he's fine. He's definitely not Wesley Snipes, but Omar's great. So he does fine there. But here's the thing. We want to see, if we're going to watch a major league sequel, I want to see Rick Vaughn. I want to see Roger Dorn. I want to see Jay Taylor. I want to see Pedro Serrano. I want to see Willie Mays Hayes. I do not want to see this weird caricature Tanaka and I really do not want to see every goddamn scene with Rube Baker the (laughs) dopey catch I'm like why do we have so much screen time for these two terrible characters that I'm just like I don't give a crap about either of these characters why are we taking screen time away from all of the characters 
that we liked. I think the obvious answer to that is that they wanted to build a franchise and you know, especially with white with Snipes on the way out, they know they're going to lose those franchise stars. Like Sheen was becoming huge at that point. Mm-hmm. Barringer also still had a good career going. I mean, Rene Russo just like swept into the studio for one scene and then pieced out because she had better things to do with her life. And I think they knew that if they were going to keep going with this, they had to introduce new characters for, with actors that they could foreseeably continue to manipulate for multiple films to come. And I think that was the logic. And unfortunately for them, it really, really failed because there's nothing endearing about a guy who, I mean, oh, but I read the articles in Playboy who literally memorizes the weird facts about what the girls like. And then is like memorizing the Fredericks of Hollywood catalog. And that's the only way he can throw a ball back to the pitcher. Like, what is that? It's so bad. It's so unfunny. But then he, so, but that's also not even like, that's his, that's one of his like character pieces. The other is he's like this farm boy who then has like these like in, he has like multiple inspiring speeches. Yeah. It's like what is happening? What like what is this character? Like you give just like he should be if his only character and he had a smaller role and is that he has the yips so he, but he has to like focus on the Playboy articles and reciting that. Fine, whatever. It's not it. The joke doesn't land but it's smaller. So it's like, whatever, that's just one of the characters yeah. on the team. The fact that that's, he's such a central character and, and you're right because that character is in the next one in Major League Three, um, which I have not seen and I will try to resist as long as possible until, until we have to we have the to. show. Yeah. Um, but like, that's, it's true. Like you bring that character back because you can get him back, but Charlie Sheen is long gone and you can, you can basically get Corbin Burnson and then any of these other people. But like Dennis Haysbert, he's off. He's doing 24 and all state commercials. Charlie Sheen is becoming a mega star. Um, and also then in Mr. Baseball, right? D- Dennis Haysbert. We, we got two. Uh, this is the second Dennis Haysbert baseball movie. Yeah, at least he moved on to one with slightly less offensive Japanese stereotypes in it. Yeah, um, much better. <laughs> I will say something that the Rube plot reminded me of some much, much better baseball media. Um, and I was mad about it because it reminded me of my favorite baseball book, which is a book called The Art of Fielding by uh, Chad Harbach. And it is a beautiful, wonderful piece of literary fiction about a college level uh, shortstop who is just a gifted natural. Like he's incredibly skilled, very talented on his way to become the next big thing. But he suddenly loses his ability to play the way he could because he starts to think about it too much. Mm -hmm. And the entire concept of the story is the return to thoughtless being where to play well you need to not think about what you're doing and rube has a line where you know somebody out or, or jake asks and he's like well how can you can throw guys out at second what are you thinking then and he's like i'm not thinking and i'm like oh it's it just ties right back to that beautiful concept that the way to play naturally is to not think about what you're doing that it becomes just an extension of who you are so if you get anything out of this aside from not to watch major league two it's that you should definitely read the art of fielding by chad harbeck because it's just a tremendous tremendous book and if you love baseball it's about this kind of bond between this 
college age catcher who knows that he's never going to make it in the bigs because he's already running on nothing with his knees but he's like wise beyond his years and it's kind of their end of college experience and then their friendship and the whole philosophy of baseball and it's really beautiful and I'm pissed off that Major League Two made me think of it um, but you should all definitely read it. I, I think what really <laughs> hurt this movie from a sequel standpoint was the lack of a significant time jump. Yeah. Like, Darby, you mentioned Pedro Serrano, like the big transition he made to Buddhism over the winter. Um, but like Rick Vaughn, it felt like he was still, you know, the young rookie and all of a sudden overnight turns into a completely new person. Like I would have loved to see this movie 10 years down the road when the guys, one of them's a coach, one of them's hanging on as a veteran. Like I'd love to see how their characters progressed, but one off season was not enough for that. I think the time in between the movie's release would have been better for that as well. Cause these guys, I mean, when Jake Taylor rolls up, I'm like, God damn, you got old. And like he, like Behringer definitely aged in between the two movies. Um, and I think the other thing, like it, it defies logic because Jake mentions in the first movie that he's making league minimum, which one I think is almost an absurd implausibility for somebody who is at least a veteran in some capacity and previously with the Indians that he's not making at least a little above league minimum. But then Vaughn mentions in the sequel and he was a rookie from the penal league in the first season. <laughs> And is now making seven figures. Mm -hmm. Seven figures. I'm sorry, but even Shohei Otani currently is not making seven figures. He will be when he's a free agent. But like, you have got to be kidding me. No wonder Dorn had to sell the team. He had a pre-arbitration player. Yeah, just, like, I was going to say, it is possible. It is very possible that Roger Dorn, who is an idiot, might have just been like, I'm going to re-sign you for... Yeah, and maybe that's why he year. had no money to get through the whole season. But like, <laughs> my as soon as he said that, he's like, "Well, now I'm you know here making seven figures, and he's got all these deals going on the side." And I'm like, "You were a rookie last season. Like, I get it. You gained some popularity towards the end of the year, and like, yeah, you sold some jerseys. Yeah, your rookie card's worth maybe a little bit more than it was right out of the tops pack. But like." seven figures mm -mm. i think brett's nailed it there though like the, the and, and actually you mentioned there's five years in between the release of major league and major league two uh, major league comes out in 1989 major league two 1994 that's oh, the jump you need that's our nice little window of some of the best kids movies ever released too so it's it's a great little period but like that's your five years right five years you know, maybe the maybe Cleveland doesn't win the World Series in that time, so you still get like a competing for that there. But that's five years is plenty of time to potentially see Pedro has now suddenly become like a Buddhist. Like we don't know what happened, but whatever you can you can say that like in those the years he maybe starts struggling and he finds a new path, and and maybe then Rick Vaughn like slowly kind of sells out and has a big Jay Taylor now. Yeah, he gets his new contract and everything's big. That could maybe be the thing. And maybe Willie Mays Hayes, after being like super successful like this, decides, you know what? I'm going to try the home run again. I really do think I can do it. The one year, it's just like such a weird switchover. But then the biggest problem is, okay, so the film takes place 
in the next, the very next offseason. So after the end of the events of Major League One, the next film starts up with um, Harry Doyle, played by the incredible Bob Uecker, who is still great in this. He's maybe a little too over the top. They kind of like a little amped it up a little bit more. Turned him up to 11, maybe a couple of times more than they should have. But still great. Still enjoy it. Like still by far the funniest part of this movie. He also has my least favorite line in the entire movie um, where he talks about Serrano and he covers the mic and he says, what a pansy because he's out in the field doing like some Tai Chi moves. And I'm like, that's where I'm talking about when I'm talking about like the the real tuned in homophobia here is really weird to me um and like super unnecessary but parkman parkman is as well it's like every other line like every diss of his is like homophobia to people yeah parkman is like i mean he's the villain so that makes sense but but i mean you could still make him a villain without making him like it's such a lazy 90s way to make people like to one signify somebody is less than a man which is what's happening Mm -hmm. with serrano in the field where he's like oh you know he he cared i thought it was beautiful that serrano wanted to see if that pigeon was okay I would have done the same thing. I loved that. Predicted that's six years before Randy yes. Johnson murdered. This is uh, weirdly prophetic. Thought that was a really nice moment that he went out to check on the bird. And yes, it lost them the game. And that's a real bummer. But I just think that means that he's an animal lover, even though he wanted to sacrifice chickens at one point. The that's year before, <laughs> six months earlier, he was ready to sacrifice chickens. He's a brand new man. Um, but like to like uh, to use the insults that that somehow makes him less of a man or it, it, those are just like it's so lazy it's such lazy comedy the movie is lazy in so many ways right oh, the time boy. jump doesn't happen there and then the film starts off so basically the first half of the movie roger Dorn retires and then buys the team right so the so the the, the master plan that as a Rays fan, because the team is still trying to get new stadiums, I am cursed with people constantly using the fact that Major League's premise as like a real life thing, which news flashed, everybody listening. By the way, owners don't need to get an excuse to leave. They can leave for anything. Stuart Sternberg is not trying to lower attendance so he can leave. That's just not how it works. It's not a Major League scenario. That was not a documentary. That was a comedy movie. Plus, in the first film, it does even say, like, there's a clause where you can get out of the, the lease if it's under 800K attendance for the season. Blah, it was blah, specifically blah. So lease. It's a specific really- thing, yeah. yeah. And it's I, I, this movie also predicted a team moving to Miami, though, which I, the major league did? did a team moving to Miami, did? which I thought was kind of fun. So so the the, the film, you know, so, so the, the owner's plot fails. So she's going to sell the team and Roger Dorn, you know, buys it. For 150 okay. million dollars. Yes, very funny scene. Actually, solid, funny. Like, and I thought that was going to be the only appearance of of the of the owner, oh, uh, Rachel wish. Phelps, because that I thought was like a f- a perfect send off, right? Yeah. You know, she wanted to do this plot, it failed. She hates this team and hates baseball, and is like, you know what? Great, fine, whatever. I'm going to sell the team, and then is able to, you know, kind of screw Dorn out of a few, you know, tens of millions at the end. Roger Warren buys it and then she's out. Perfect. New character. And then you can then potentially have later on, it's introduced that like Dorn spent all of his money and he doesn't have enough money to get through the whole season. So he needs to start 
raising attendance and he buys a bunch of like, you know, advertisements, which solid, funny, whatever. The thing is, that's the joke, right? Is then that's your premise for the second half. It's a little bit of a reverse of the first movie. The first movie is the owner wants them to not have attendance, but the team wins in spite of it. This could be Roger Dorn is desperate to like boost attendance. So it's going to be a lot of gimmick stuff. It's a lot of gimmicky things. A lot it's of Savannah be, Bananas nonsense on the field, you know. Which could be comedy gold. You could have some real funny there. Meet and greets with the players, like making them do things that they might not want to do just to like have people come in. Yeah, that would have been a much funnier movie. The film doesn't, doesn't like trust it or care enough. And so they just pull the plug on that after introducing it. And then suddenly, well, Rachel Phelps is back, bought the team again for a steal. Why? She's the only only person in America who has enough money to buy a baseball team. Like, is that Roger? Sell it to literally anybody else. Anybody. There are so many millionaires at the time, only 28 teams. You can, you're going to want, you can sell it for more. Okay. But so she buys it again. Why? Because she just hates these guys and is now ready to get. That's still money. Yeah, she still, still spent at a least ton of money, a hundred plus million dollars for no reason, none. Why? Why does this happen? And then you have the same thing again as her wanting them to lose, and them winning in spite of her. But then it's like this weird, she comes in and it's like the most cartoonish, like, like Cruella DeVille cartoony character. Yeah. And it's like, what is this movie? Like this movie isn't a kid's movie. But it's, it's like they wanted it to be, which is why they yeah. dropped the rating. And I think they wanted to appeal to a wider audience. It was a huge mistake because huge. I think so much of what did work in the first one is that it is an adult comedy. And it is, you know, relying on a, you know, a bit more of the like, a little bit of the dirty humor, a little bit of the swearing, guys being guys, my air quotes are very heavy, but like, it's, you know, that kind of attitude of like the clubhouse demeanor that you can't really get away with in a PG movie. And I think they did it because they wanted to like hit a wider target audience, but that's an audience that didn't really exist for the first one, because unless these are people watching it on late night TV or, you know, family owns a VHS and they've just religiously watched it for five years, where are these new younger people going to find an interest in this movie? And I think part of it is probably they wanted to capitalize on the appeal of movies for kids that had come out in that time frame, you know, movies like stuff we've talked about the sandlot um you know little big league um mm-hmm. rookie of the year all of those movies had come out in this same time stretch and they didn't necessarily do gangbusters at the box office i think we see them as being really popular now because they're all kind of deeply entrenched in our childhood and have kind of a cult level of love from baseball fans of that era but i think they saw that there was an audience for younger people interested in baseball and they're like well maybe we can kind of like toe that line for like maybe the teenagers who were a bit too old to enjoy rookie of the year and i think that was the path they might have taken and it was a huge mistake yeah yeah you bring back somebody like rachel phelps because that's what happened in the first movie but if you are trying to introduce the new audiences you don't need to do that and i fundamentally 
don't believe that Rachel Phelps as a character from the first movie who inherited this wealth and this team from her late husband. And I think the, like Rachel Phelps is one of those characters that really towed a line where she could have been almost sympathetic because people mm -hmm. doubted her because she was a showgirl. She clearly knew something about sports. Like she went in there in that first meeting and she's like, here's what we're going to do. Here's what our team is. Here are the people we're going to invite. And yeah, there were jokes in the spring training list for this guy's dead. And it's, but she went through the effort of making a list of the worst players she can find, which meant she had to do her research like a reverse money ball to find these guys <laughs> that would fundamentally. Yeah, she ran the query and then just and reversed the list. <laughs> she had no Jonah Hill on her side to do that. And I think, but I think that where everything falls apart is that I don't think that the writers of the sequel had much respect for anybody, first of all. But they definitely didn't respect the character like she was borderline cartoonish in the first one because her plot was so stupid but i think as a person if you were to ask yourself if rachel phelps was given 150 million dollars and no longer had to ever think about the cleveland indians what would she do she would take her 150 million dollars sell her house in cleveland and go off to los angeles or new york or miami where she wanted to live to begin with and would never think about a baseball team again in her life yeah. 150 million dollars like to believe that her spite for that team ran so deep that she would go out of pocket 100 plus million dollars to buy it back to run the same gambit that failed her the first time, like a season later, this team has not gotten fundamentally season worse later. a season later. She hasn't stocked it with the worst players in baseball this time around. For her to believe that halfway through, is, it's just, it. as a writer and just a fan of well-thought-out character development, it's completely illogical. And it's it's one of so many things here. They, they have... You have Dorn as the owner sell Parkman, right? He tr trades him and whatnot. So, he, and he gets Tanaka and money and whatever. That's, I get it. Cause it's like, he has no money. So he can't pay the free agent that he signed. So he has to trade him to somebody else. He has to do a salary dump. But like, that would have made more sense if it was Rachel Phelps taking over and like making the team worse. But that's not how it happens. So you already have the, like, you already set up the central premise is the team is going to try to have to Rachel Phelps adds nothing to this movie and it doesn't add any story beats. No. The whole thing is the team is a mess because everybody is like up their own ass with like their own stuff, right? They've all lost the, 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 the special weirdness that they had. And now they're all like dealing with that. They have to overcome that to then win. And then this one guy who's a real jerk on the team uh, Parkman, who was sold to another team, to the White Sox, now they have to face each other. That's like, that is the, the everything else is there. Having to cut to Rachel Phelps being cartoonish is a waste of our time. Rube is a waste of our time. Tanaka is a waste of our time. These are just wastes of time. The whole thing is just absolutely, they're not funny, but it also is like taking away from all of the characters yeah and and you just it's so frustrating because you're like this is not what the film was about and you have all the same people involved like the director is the same like so like it just feels like 
maybe the studio was saying like we need that character in there like this first film had it had them had these shots where you cut to the owner's box the owner's like cabana yeah um, which very i do like the style as i love the style i love her two large bodyguards slash sex slaves maybe like, i don't know boys. let's just cabana boys yeah uh which again if you're a billionaire heiress you do you that's i'm you know pay them well give them uh health insurance and yeah it's a it's a living but yeah it, it it's like they just were like what was in the first film just do that again do it again do it again i, I think let's take a quick break and then we can talk <laughs> about some of the other stuff that got recycled that i think made this feel really really lazy even beyond just the Rachel Phelps plot because I think that was the most egregious one but like there's a lot of stuff that got retread poorly um so let's take a quick break and then we'll get back and talk romance another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where Bank of America can help for your financial to-dos Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So we talked a little bit about how the villain plot was a recycle and it's not the only thing. And there's a couple sight gags that I think are reused. And I think they intend to do it in a way that's like a loving homage to the original, but only comes across as like really lazy. So yeah, there's the, in, in the first movie you get, you know, Jake Taylor, his knees are busted. He's just about useless. And he comes on in the big game and he does the classic Babe Ruth point. And then, you know, the hit doesn't come and he does it a second time. And then the big kind of sight gag there that works really effectively is that he's pointing like he's going to do a big home run and he bunts, which I think is just like the perfect kind of thing to do in that moment. And he beats out the bunt. That's what wins them the game. So it's it's kind of a beautiful play on expectation. It works really well in that scene because it's one of the final moves of the movie and it really is very effective. And then you have it come up again with Willie Mays Hayes in the sequel where he gets up to the plate and he points and everyone's like oh he's gonna hit a home run and the gag becomes that he just keeps hitting balls that are just shy of being home runs Mm -hmm. but that's not the joke like it's not it's not funny like the way it was effective in the first movie is that Taylor was setting expectation for both the other team and everyone watching that he was going to try to go yard. And when they're all thinking that that's the case, he lays down a bunt and it's perfect and everything is great. Having Willie use the same conceit, but also wanting to actually hit a home run is just him being kind of cocky and full of himself. And it doesn't work. Like it's just not it's not an effective reuse. I think maybe if you hadn't had Jake Taylor do it in the first movie and just had Willie come out there because now he thinks he's the home run king waiting to happen and he pulls that, then yeah, okay, that would be kind of funny. If he keeps pointing for the bleachers and he keeps falling short, that joke would work. But because it's a direct retread of the joke, the same joke told differently in the first movie, it's so much less effective. Mm It, that it's totally true and well, like that's sort of also the the point thing I thought was great because Jake Taylor's character is really well set up 
as the and he and this is actually one of the very few funny jokes in this movie is playing on Jake Taylor's ability to kind of manipulate people and like say like as a catcher he's always like kind of you know telling people stuff he's chatting and he's getting people to like you know uh, out of their element so like the point and then laying down the bunt is perfect because he's constantly kind of playing mind games with people and like in the you know the first one where he's basically you know trying to distract the guy talking about his girlfriend dancing and then he swings but he's off, you know off balance so he pops it up in this one one of the very few but like it's it's not a it's a sort of a retread of the same character but it's more just a character piece it's more like this is in his character to do this is the, the manager, um, Lou Brown, played very good by James Gammon. He's perfect in this type of role, just like gravelly, yelly yeah. guy. Um, he's in the hospital. He has a heart attack. And he basically is telling, and, and, um, and Jake Taylor is now the manager. He's acting manager. And, and so, or interim manager. And so, like, Lou is basically saying, like, you know, tell him I'm fine. Don't, you know, the last thing I want is to just do some, you know, cliche win one for the skipper type of thing. And then Jake's like, probably not going to make it. We got to win this surgery. one for him. Yeah. You know, like, you know, he said, you know, like, let, you know, let's, let's hopefully show me a little bit of heaven in case I'm not going there. Uh, or a little bit of paradise in case I'm not going there. Perfect. It's a very in Jake's character to be kind of a little bit of a schemer and just kind of mentally play with people for that way. That's in character. So much of this movie and so much of the characters are just wildly out of character. Yeah. Just wildly out of character. Like obviously the, it's, it's kind of a funny beginning because it starts with uh, you know, all the characters showing up and you have wild thing, like there's a motorcycle and all of his fans and the, you know, the jackets and all the, you know, they're all the punk hair and, and stuff. And they see the motorcycle and they're like, oh, but it's like, it's not him. And then there's this big stretch, like Rolls Royce. And it's, that's wild thing. But he's basically Charlie Sheen broke out the Bud Fox costume from Wall Street and he's got the slicked hair and, and he's like totally corporate sellout now. Yeah, he's got his waspy girlfriend and his endorsement deals, which I find to be very entertaining in and of itself, because if somebody was going to enlist Ricky Vaughn to be in an endorsement, they want the caricature of Wild Thing, which yes. is how he's known. All the shirts that everybody was wearing in the first movie, all the identical haircuts. For me to believe that they would want a clean cut, fresh faced version of that character, and not the immediately recognizable haircut and glasses is beyond, there's so much of this movie that defies even the most basic levels of logic. But like, that would be, I'm trying to think of an example now. And it would be like wanting Sean Doolittle in an ad and like telling him to shave his beard and not wear mm -hmm. glasses. You know what I mean? Like it would be unthinkable to change the look and vibe of such a well-known player like it makes no sense it makes no sense that there would be those like like i get the i mean i get the jokes it's playing off type but they don't make sense yeah so because they're not so set up it doesn't play well like i thought the uh the the commercial with um a, a fantastic little cameo by richard schiff you know toby ziegler from the west wing 
was a, it was funny. And his like exasperation as the commercial director was very funny. But again, it's like, why would you want Rick Wild Thing Vaughn to be playing croquet? And would not that commercial have been so much funnier and more like immediately viral for the era if it was a bunch of like stuffy country club dudes and Rick Vaughn with his cut off leather jacket and his like, you know, rebel without a cause demeanor at the country club using a baseball bat to play croquet. Like yeah. Yeah. that commercial, instantly funnier and more memorable. And and I get the joke of, it just, it's just not a good joke, right? So I can, you can do, what if Rick Vaughn sold out but instead of him being like clean cut and clean shaven, it's just, he's too busy trying to market all of his pitches and give them names. That's yeah. fine. And he's trying to be, he's just, he's too busy to do like hang out with the kids for, you know, the inner city youth and the like, you know, at risk youth thing. Instead he has to do his commercials. It's still your character. He's still, he's now wearing the costume of wild thing but he's not embracing wild thing. Yeah. You get the same you get the same outcome, but you don't get this weird like how in like 3 months did he one get this huge contract but two suddenly become like corporate stooge and why would that be profitable for him? Yeah. It, it doesn't make sense. And you uh, kind of butted into my next thought so if you have any Oh yeah. So they I go right ahead, say, yeah. The next kind of piece of recycled garbage um from the first movie was a plot point that i thought did not belong in the first movie at all and the movie would have been significantly better without it and that remains true of the completely rehashed and recycled version of it for the second and that is the romance subplot um in the first movie the subplot is between jake taylor and renee russo's character whose name completely escapes me um, and I was only reminded how great Renee Russo is and how much better she deserved than to be in this movie and how much of a bummer it is that I think the last thing she's done in film is be Thor's mom, um, which is- But she's crazy. excellent in it. She's she's great in everything she does. Let's get a Thomas Crown Affair too. Pierce and Renee back together. Let's do it. That would be interesting, actually. No remake. Just, I want both the characters Well, no, I was going to say she was in the remake and then I was going to correct you, but no, you're right. It would be, and that would be an interesting sequel. Um, So that, yeah, in the first movie, like Renee Russo is like this long lost ex-love of Jake Taylor who was with him when he was a player, like in the heyday of him being a player. And he was kind of awful to her and he, you know, put his career above her and now she's moved on and found a relatively nice lawyer. Uh, and she's a former athlete herself. She's like a former Olympian and a swimmer and, you know, knew what it meant to be in competitive sports. And that plot had so little reason to be there. Like Taylor had enough motivation, I think, with wanting to like have one last go at being in the majors, one last shot at winning a World Series. And to add this extra element of her cheating on her fiance, um, you know the whole thing i'm sorry the my this is like ripe about the first one but i'm sorry but i don't believe for like that movie had to have been written by a man because i genuinely don't believe for a moment that her target book that he would have had to have read for her to take him seriously <laughs> is moby dick 
like a, a, a book all about a man on a search for the white whale of you know like I get the metaphor I don't know if the people <laughs> writing the movie got the metaphor or if they just like what's a fancy book we can put in here <laughs> I'm 100 percent sure that they were like fancy book for like school yeah. and they're like Moby Dick done smart fancy book whereas I think she would have wanted something a little bit more like thoughtful maybe what have you read pride and prejudice all about you know expectations of love and like Leaves all of this grass, maybe something, I don't know. Like something more interesting something. than moby yeah. dick have you read moby dick yet nobody's read moby dick renee like come on <laughs> nobody cares about the white whale um so i hated that subplot i hated it because she, it made her seem stuffy and their love was not convincing to me it felt like something he needed to win like he mm. needed to best mm-hmm. the guy. He needed to prove that he could still get her the same way that he could still win in the majors. And yet somehow there she was in like the big game at the end of it, um, you know, given the big smooch. And then by the second one, they're married. He's wearing a wedding band and she shows up for roughly 14 seconds of screen time to tell him, you already know what you want to do like a sage wife would. And that's it. That's all we see of her. Yeah. I mean, bless her for not wasting any more of her time in this than she needed to. But we've transferred the plot now to Ricky, uh, to good old Rick Vaughn, who has a boring white girlfriend named Rebecca, who just wants to like sell commercial space with him in it. Allison Duty from The Last Crusade, basically playing the same sort of character as kind of femme fatale blonde to lead our hero astray. the, The OG Gwyneth Paltrow stereotype, like real boring. And then we're introduced to a character that has never been mentioned before or even hinted at in the previous movie, even though their romance, as far as I can tell, took place during the previous movie because it was while he was in his rookie season. And it's this lovely, you know, kind of mousy woman who helps run the kids outreach center. Alyssa Milano was too expensive. And so they got her. Which was a very confusing setup because it was like she was a teacher because there were scenes where she was in a classroom with them but also it was like a kid's boarding house for like at-risk youth and I think they must have all lived there because she spent all of her time with them they really didn't go through that plot very successfully um so yeah they set up this romance of like this wistful like oh what could have been between us except it was literally less than a year ago that they've set up that they were together And it couldn't have lasted that long because then he went off and decided to become like a rich snob and, you know, go out with this other girl. And yet we're supposed to believe that she's like the one that got away. Really filling the same, same exact story beats, like in the same spots. Yeah. And it's the exact same fully unnecessary down to the like after the big game they come together after the game celebration is happening and he climbs into the stands to be with her and they kiss it's literally with the exception of her she doesn't have anyone she's cheating on and she's also meant to kind of remind him of the people he the person he used to be and that's his big lesson to be learned from her she's not like a fully realized character she isn't you know important in any other element of the plot aside from rick's journey and it's a full subplot that could have been removed from this movie just like the romance in the first one and you would have lost nothing like you could have gotten the kind of reminder with just the kids 
like if you'd had just the youth group there and remove the romantic subplot of it and have the kids be the one to remind him of who he used to be and why it matters that he is where he is that would have worked so much better there is you're dead on this movie you could cut so much and the biggest thing and this will segue into my my biggest gripe with this movie by far the most frustrating and annoying thing in this you could have replaced that and this romantic subplot that goes nowhere by just having those like a couple of like kids that are like going to the bleachers that like are above the the bullpen and like they're the people they interact with he tries to get a, a autograph early you just basically have the interaction with those two kids or like three but like the main kid really is like that's the one like the he's an at-risk youth and Ricky was that and he looks up to him and blah 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 blah, blah. he's letting him down but then he eventually realizes that's that's all you need yeah and you can also use them as sort of the stand-in or like the other additional like fan thing and you just can get Randy Quaid way the hell out of this goddamn movie because my god that is the worst character we have seen in any of these movies I hated every second of screen time that he had it was not funny I think they just were like Randy just riff but so unfunny I will say so bad with one exception that calling Rick mild thing was very funny that was pretty good that was pretty good (laughs) That was a good line. That was, was like a good a line. Cheer, well, I'll agree. I'll agree. A cheer from the audience calling him mild thing was just perfect and something that like a really annoyed Yankees fan would come up with. That's the that's the smart fan in the audience rather than like because he had a lot of like really bland and like just dumb like things. He was very much like token Fairweather fan. But like they really overdid it. Like it was too really much. Overdid it in the first film. You actually have like the the fans, you know, like the really diehards out there, and and they're kind of funny because they're kind of faceless, nameless. They're just you know fans, and they have some funny lines, you know, like they're like it was too high, and like what does that mean too high? And like revisiting them throughout the film was kind of a nice beat. Like you have the Japanese groundskeepers, you have the the construction like workers, construction worker. Guys, one of yeah. like an actual actor. The janitor I, from Scrubs. Yes, thank you. Yeah, Neil Flynn. Neil yeah. Flynn. And I'm yeah. like, oh, yeah, that guy. And th- that was great to like set, like if you, you copied so much from the first film, why not just have those people back? Construction workers, people working at a grocery store, the crowns crew. Well, they brought the Japanese guys back. So why wouldn't you just continue with the same kind of, like you had like the punk bar where everybody was really yeah. into it. And like, yeah. like those they don't need to be characters. They don't. Having Randy Quaid be like a big character in this. I mean, like he did a good job of really capturing what eventually Twitter sports fandom would be. The just pessimistic, angry, just like constantly loud mouth. Like that per- that character definitely, if Twitter existed, was DMing athletes, death threats Absolutely. after games. Yeah. Um, but like, I get it. That's obnoxious. You don't need that much of it. That's so much. That character is buying tickets to every game. They're buying playoff tickets and like spending a huge amount of money to be angry at the team. And also like they went from one season, like, okay, here's the thing with fans like that. When it's going bad, 
they're negative. When it's going good, they're positive. And they just will oscillate and be like, I told you so, no matter what. They're weirdly not going to be like negative when they're like in the World Series and succeeding or in the AL. Like that doesn't make any, It. I hated it. I hated it because there's, it's so loud and obnoxious and not funny. And like, listen, Randy Quaid right now is, spinning off of this planet through pure craziness but back in the 90s there was he actually could be harnessed to some very funny and really good performances i well, like an independence national day lampoon and... national lampoon great he's yeah. absurd and big and wildly broad and very loud and obnoxious but very funny you have to really rein in his crazy i'm going to be honest with you before yesterday i thought he was dead i genuinely <laughs> believed randy quaid had died <laughs> and I only realized he was alive because I wanted to, I be, I'm a big fan of the boys. So I wanted to see if Jack Quaid had ever commented on his uncle. Like I wanted to see if he had anything to say about Randy Quaid, RIP. I think I even had a note in my phone app that was like RIP Randy Quaid. Like I genuinely believed this man was dead. I like Nelson, uh, like the Mandela effect full swing. Like I absolutely thought Randy Quaid had passed away like five years ago. Um, and no, I can, I don't think that Jack Quaid has ever said anything about his uncle, uh, but I did find a website that said that in spite of them both being actors and having the same last name, they are not related, which is absolutely untrue. Um, <laughs> They're very much related. It, it, it goes to show how like unreliable some of those parsed together websites are. He's being cut out of like reality. Because <laughs> like, the, they were like, well, you know, Randy Quaid, parents are these people and jack parents are these people and i'm like yeah you just listed dennis quaid who is randy quaid's brother like they're slowly it's gonna be like dennis quaid only child (laughs) like famous only child dennis quaid (laughs) totally unhinged though because my fun fact for the day randy quaid very much still alive still alive um yeah so hated that character wildly too much screen time wildly too much screen time it's just so loud and so obnoxious and you could have easily just replaced that with your standard your fan your hardcore fans the grounds crew the construction workers and then if you wanted more fan perspective of the ebbs and flows you can then have those kids and then that's your perfect way of like rick vaughn being like you know what i have to reject you and i have to embrace my roots and that's what i'm that's how i'm going to succeed because i'm going to do it for these kids I don't, you know, like I, my life is getting too, too, too successful too quickly. I'm being led astray. I got to do this. The romance plot was just so like, again, so though, unnecessary. Just, like for kids, what, why do the kids want this? Well, that's just like, it. if you want to appeal to a younger audience, center the kids more than their teacher, like have scenes of the kids together in the stands you know talking about what they think is going to happen with the season or one of them can be like this is stupid Vaughn's career is over and like the kid that's very obviously a stand-in for young Rick you just got to believe in him like it's gonna be fine and like he can be the emphasis of like the true blue diehard fan um yeah I would have much rather had more of the kids and none of the romance because I think I had notes on the first one that said the romance could have been eliminated completely like, it's just no good. I loved, okay, this is a note I have. Rick's apartment is a spectacle and I love it. It's got, it is like the neon lights everywhere. Yeah. You got weird Very sculptures. Nice. 
Uh, yeah, that is the most 90s apartment just condensed into fantastic. A spectacle for the eyes. No notes, all love it. Don't change a thing. Interior decorator, perfect. Um, the right guard commercial was very funny. I did, <laughs> I did enjoy that. Um, we already covered why it doesn't make any sense logically. Still, still pretty funny. And honestly, watching this movie, Charlie Sheen in his prime, that is a that is a star. He is very funny, very charismatic. Good delivery on the screen. Yeah. Um, what notes did I have of things I actually did like? Um, I think I had one more note where I really hated the announcer guy. He he did a great job, but I hated some of his lines. And one of them where he was talking about playing the White Sox and he said, well, at least they're not from Canada. I just let up a note in my phone that says rude. Um, <laughs> but he also had a really great line um, about Serrano, which is that he left a small village on the base paths because he'd left so many men on base. And I'm stealing that for future re- recaps. because That's a, a beautiful a line. Um, I did have a note somewhere in here that said I'd rather be watching Black Hammer White Lightning because mm. um, that was the Willie Mayhew solid, solid joke I love I always love a good movie inside a movie yeah and it was him and um, Jesse Ventura yeah Jesse Ventura perfect yeah. perfect casting choice I almost wonder if this movie I mean like the recasting of, of Willie Mays Hayes I have a note about that because there's a line where he, he jokes that Hayes does his own acting. He says he even does his own acting. And I said, that has to be a dig at Wesley Snipes. And then I said, this whole character feels like a jab at Wesley Snipes for not coming back. And I think they probably rewrote a chunk of that script Maybe. to make fun of the actor just Wesley to kind of like stick it in a little bit. That's how I felt about it. I right? almost wonder, I could see that being correct. I, I almost wonder like, so you wrote Ray Russo out. Like, I feel like, you could almost have written Willie Mays Hayes out. He doesn't really get a lot to do in this movie. I mean, he has a he has a cool scene where he jumps over, you know, Parkman. That was a good, pretty good, solid, you know, piece of of fun action there. But like, you could have easily just said like he, you know, left to become an actor. Did you get Willie uh, Wesley Snipes back for like one scene, which is the the, the fake trailer, the, the fake trailer, and then he's like, well, he he left baseball for acting and that would have been super funny that would have been very funny and that way you're not like this is weird that you have everybody back but then you recast one person yeah it's just very odd um or give that character more to do and you just go like whatever Wesley Snipes is notoriously difficult to work with uh we just had to move on um I just I I would have liked either less or more of Willie Mays Hayes. I think the amount we got was incorrect. It was an incorrect level. More or a lot less. But right this amount, weird and unsatisfying. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I think it was just a strange middle ground where a lot of the screen time that went to like Tanaka should have gone to Willie yeah. Mays Hayes, I think. Yeah. Um, I think if you'd established more of a rivalry and a nemesis relationship with Hayes and Parkman, that mm-hmm. would have made that scene feel a lot more validating at the end, as opposed to setting up Parkman and Taylor as kind of foils because they were both catchers. Um, whereas that developed into just about nothing because by the yeah. time the halfway point of the movie rolls around, Jake is now managing, like coaching and then managing the team. So it's irrelevant. 
and you didn't set up I don't think enough time creating that rivalry or that nemesis relationship between Parkman and the other guys on the team like he was just kind of vaguely a jerk to everybody yeah I agree you needed more you needed a bigger because I think that becomes such a central part of the end that I I would have liked to see a bit more like every character like him like basically specifically wrong every character right we get we get Vaughn so we get that redemption later but like we don't really I mean we kind of like we I needed more direct you know with everybody to make him yeah like the Hayes play was really cool and like we've actually seen an almost identical play happen in real life in baseball which I thought was hilarious watching that scene I'm like oh I've, I've seen this happen in real life um but it's for a team from Canada if I remember correctly um I think that was a Blue Jays play when it actually happened but um I don't know I think for that to have more oomph for for like Hayes as a character it really had to have like he had to have been specifically villainous to him Mm -hmm. you know what I mean and it just didn't like it was fun and it was great and whatever but it I don't know this movie didn't know how to movie it didn't it didn't it it's I will say overall, as we as we kind of come to the end of our like kind of the movie discussion part of it, it's not it's far from the worst things we've seen on this yeah. sh- this this show. But it's so unnecessary and so bland, and so much of this movie is just like dull and pointless that it's it's definitely like f- super forgettable. Like yep. it's not, um, I don't think good enough to be fun and it's definitely not bad enough to be like an enjoyable, like, I feel like Summer Catch was a, was like a bad movie, but like kind of an enjoyable watch because there's a lot to make fun of. Yeah. This movie is just like, oh yeah, it's a worse version of the first movie and that's, well, that's it. And it's just bland. I was saying that off, off when we were on our break and I said that I think there was a good 30 minutes towards the middle of this movie where I spent more time looking at my phone than at the screen and I missed nothing. nothing. No relevant information, nothing that like added anything to the plot. I missed nothing. Like I got some great TikToks watched in that time. <laughs> I regret nothing. Uh, let's take another quick break and then we'll come back and kind of give our last thoughts and who we would pick for the Rays if anyone. So I think by now it's probably pretty obvious that we are not big fans of Major League Two. Uh, I did want to quickly touch base with both of you to see what your general feelings on Major League One were, because I know we rewatched we rewatched that. I don't know if I've ever seen the second one before watching it this time. I know I've never seen the third one, um, but I do have like core, weirdly core childhood memories of that cutout that they use as like the guide where they're taking her clothes off slowly like that's just ingrained in my memory uh as having been weird at the time and remains weird now um but what did you guys think revisiting the original brett uh you know it's i think it's a very good movie as a lot of comedies from that time didn't age particularly well in my opinion but i mean when you think of classic baseball movies this one is right up in that upper echelon with with bull durham with the Sandlot, um, it, it's it's pro- that's probably the big three, um, and it, it, and a lot of parts of it do hold up. The baseball parts that I really did enjoy, um, very charming. Charlie Sheen, great. Wesley Snipes w- w- was incredible. 
Um, so yeah, I think you kind of take it for what it is, a comedy in the, in, in the late eighties where there, there's, there's going to be some jokes that you probably wouldn't tell today. And, uh, it's, it's still, still a really good movie. I find it to be just such a enjoyable and breezy watch. It goes by very quickly. Yeah. I think the Tom Berenger romantic subplot is like the biggest dragging in the movie. But like, other than that, it's just fires along at a nice clip. Everything is working in that movie besides that romantic subplot. Like, I think the humor, uh, like in terms of like Euchre and his like jokes are great. The the uh, kind of what I think the movie does really well is captures, I think the baseball part super well, but also captures how baseball can, a baseball season can like take over a town. And just seeing like the fans like start to fill up the crowd and or the stands and seeing how the success of a team can really inspire and like kind of uh, kind of go through and infect like everybody in a town and in a community, I think is really cool. I think that's like a big element to that. Um, I also think just the baseball, both the action on the field is played really well and shot very well, but also just the general like sense of like a clubhouse. And in a weird way, it's like a really good example of just like the dynamic nature of a clubhouse of a bunch of weirdos in all sorts of walks of life. You have, you know, this hulking Cuban slugger and you have this weird like pitcher who's like this misfit and you have the like old wily vet who's like a, you know, Christian and, and just like seems to be like 60 years old. Uh, you know, like that's your like long time, you know, trustable arm. You have a, a vet catcher behind the plate. You have your high priced guy. Like the, the dynamic nature of, you know, flashy players and quiet guys and loud mouths and, and like smart, like clever, funny guy. Like, I think that's what major league and why it has such good staying power worked well was that all of those characters really felt, I think, authentic. I think you can, Jake Taylors are all over baseball. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Rick Vaughn's are all over baseball too. Uh, you have Willie Mays Hayes is like a really cool character who's, who's you know, uses his speed, who's got, you know, some, some a good cockiness to him. Um, all of these characters kind of fit and they all kind of have a, a purpose and a place and the clubhouse works really well because they're not homogenous. It's all a bunch of different people from different walks of life, kind of finding that teamwork and that unity to succeed. And I think that's like those, like the, the little elements that really work well, that stick around with it. And I think it also just did a lot of things really well the first time that so many people have copied that, that it makes it enduring. It makes it one of the all times. Yeah, I think I'd agree. I think that it, it has its roots as kind of a, a good, slightly edgy, but it very much of its time comedy, a late night comedy in a lot of ways. Um, and, I, and I think you're right. I think that they played it well with the characters in the clubhouse kind of being found family rather than at odds with each other. So they really did come from nothing to be this scrappy group of nobodies that really pulled it all together in the end. And I think underdogs as the players on the team 
but also Cleveland, the team being underdogs and kind of everybody slowly realizing that they could actually make something special of that team was really nice. I think the thing that for me really stood out now after years of watching it was like, oh boy, the Indian stuff. Um, it really, really emphasizes why changing that team name was so important because mm. so much of the imagery of like people in the stands dressed in like full chief gear and like so much of just the chief Wahoo logo everywhere and things that the announcer was saying and like it was just awful and racist and like how did we not know how awful and racist it was while it was happening like it felt so clear with the vision of hindsight how bad that was it's really like there's a lot of things where it's like there's some jokes here like ooh, that's a little that's a little edgy but it's like whatever it's a it's a it's an adult comedy yeah but like all of that stuff you're like oh geez that is ah, yeah but what I also love, and this came out when uh, when when Cleveland changed the name and it you know announced that they would be the Guardians, and people are like, "What? What the hell is Guardians? That doesn't make any sense. Like that's so generic." But then a lot of people I follow that are you know Matt Lyons and other mm -hmm. um, Cleveland um, folk, Cleveland fans were talking about how like that actually is like a fairly deeply rooted local name and the movie major league opens on the guardians. literally on the guardians of traffic the the statues yeah. um the gorgeous like art deco statue uh statues on the each side of the bridge go, going into cleveland and then it it pans up from the guardian of traffic up to there's the stadium there's the old cleveland stadium and it's like Wow, this movie, which is so quintessentially Cleveland, like it is the Cleveland baseball. Like this is what people think of when they think of Cleveland baseball more than almost anything else. They think of major league. They think of Charlie Sheen. He's probably the most famous Cleveland Indian slash Cleveland Guardian of all time. <laughs> uh, and, and like the movie opens on the Guardians of Traffic and then panning up. So I think being able to change that name into something that still is enduring and still works to when you're watching this movie, you're like, it starts with that. And it's, it's kind of cool, but yeah, it, oh boy, that, that, uh, the name and even stuff, it was super funny. Cause like listening to Euchre, even the stuff that isn't like an overt reference, just saying the name with like normal baseball cliches yeah. like you know a bunch of angry indians out there it's like yikes yikes this is yeah. like just the normal um uh baseballisms but with indians just does not it, it was time to change so yeah. well past time to change but i i think that's something watching the movie i'm like oh yeah look at that that's there's the namesake it's like right there the very opening it fades up from black and bam there's like the new logo and it's that's super cool yeah no I so I think ultimately what it comes down to is I think the three of us all agree that it is definitely worth it to revisit the first one um it's still a, a fairly decent and I think probably above average baseball movie um it would not hit my top five like some sports broadcasters um and the second one would certainly not be in my top three like some sports but i sorry i have to lean heavy shade on ben verlander uh and calling him a sports personality still feels like cheating um but he he released a list of his top five favorite movies top five favorite baseball movies major league was number one fine you're a bro i get it whatever uh, second field of dreams lazy choice field of dreams is 
probably honestly if we talk about it one day not actually a very good baseball movie not actually a very good movie if we really get deep into it his number three choice was major league two major league two was his top three baseball movie followed then by the sandlot below major league two and bull durham below major league two two. anyway i can't take anyone seriously who one believes babe ruth killed his wife in house fire and two major league two is a better movie than bull durham and the sandlot helen wilson is or helen ruth is rolling over in her grave (laughs) thinking that ben verlander would sully this yeah um yeah major league two is I feel like if you're a fan of Major League, Major League Two would be extra frustrating because yeah. it's so like there are some good elements. Like there are some good elements in there. You get like the return of Wild Thing, but like everything is just like a poor copy. So it would just be like just watch the first movie. You know, like everything is just better in the first movie than the second movie. And yeah, though okay, one th- I will say one great thing about major league two i will give one more oh, before we go one one really funny thing was roger dorn who after being an owner basically signed himself back up to be on the team uh he's on the roster and taylor decides to finally play him he finally is like you're in and he's like excellent and he's like okay and he's like i want you to go in there and i want you to you know this this pitcher always pitched you inside right i want you to get up there lean in and so he goes in there, he leans in, takes takes the hit by pitch, goes to first, and then he wants to get in a pinch runner and he's like refusing to go and he's serving yeah. a little fit. Pretty funny. Corbin Burnson, very enjoyable. I'd very enjoyable in that. That was a very funny bit. Agree. That was one solid moment that gave me a good chuckle. I liked that one. Not worth watching the movie, but yeah. just Find that one. Find clip scene. on YouTube or something. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> that one's pretty solid. Worth it. Um, I don't know, Brett, any final thoughts before we pick our players? Uh, yeah, it just major leagues are so forgettable. Yeah. I, I mean, and I did watch them and maybe, you know, I did like, I finished major league and then started major league two, like immediately after. And it just felt like it was an extra hour and a half added to the end of the movie and an hour and a half that I, that I did not need to see. It's bland. I think the only word for it is it's really bland. It does nothing new, nothing interesting. It's just so unnecessary to exist. And the and if you do watch it like like Brett and I did, like directly back to back, it's way worse because it's like, oh, this is just, like the film just like suddenly was like more toothless and boring. It's like it's just you go like, oh, this is pretty solid, and then like, oh down it goes it, it really like putting them really close together if you're going to watch this movie watch it like years later after watching like major league because yeah. even a week apart really is not bad. enough time it's yeah. uh, unless you really really want to shine a light on how much better major league is like if you want major league to feel like a cinematic masterpiece then absolutely <laughs> watch major league two immediately after uh, all right. Well, final thoughts. I think let's pick which player we would pick for the Rays. I think I'm going to go with a, a really unpopular pick. Uh, I'm going to, well, who knows? Uh, I'm going to take Parkman. Uh, I know he's a little bit of a clubhouse cancer, not necessarily the greatest guy to have around, calls his teammates losers, but I respect anybody we can 
have a 900 average against a single pitcher uh, over the course of a season, especially one in the same division as you. So quite frankly, that is a, a hitter I want on my team, even if he is a jerk. And he kind of looks like Liam Hendricks, and I think Liam Hendricks is hot. So uh, I'm okay with that that choice. It's a heck of a player. I, I, I can't disagree. What I will say about Parkman is like, it just, it reminded me, it was it, one in each movie, home plate collisions is just something that used to happen. Like to me, I know we're only not, yeah. we're not too far removed from that era, but it just feels like so out of place now. I don't know. It's just like, we used to allow this. We used to it's encourage obliterating it. a catcher. Yeah. One one of my all-time favorite Detroit Tigers memories, and you might remember the star because it was against the Mariners. Um, and it was an extra innings game at, in Seattle, and it was like a fucking four-hour plus game. And it ended with this amazing move from Brian Pena, who was at the time the backup catcher for the Tigers. And he got this ball at like plate. I think there was a collision involved. And I just remember him like on the ground looking like obliterated and like holding the ball up in like this <laughs> cinematic moment because he got it. And I'm just like, Ugh, one of my, any so good. Um, but something that we would not see happen now. So um, yeah, it's, it's true though. But uh, uh, Darby, who you got? I am going to take... Um, I, I was actually considering Parkman because I think that's a really, uh, you know, he's a pretty standout, clearly one of the best players that's in this. Um, but you know what? I, I really want to, I, I think anytime you can get a picture that's interesting, that even as a really neat experiment and get a little weird with it, I think that's somebody I want the Rays to take, take in. So bring me Ricky Wild Thing Vaughn. And you know what? We'll, we'll maybe see. Like, maybe he's a starter. Maybe he's a reliever. Maybe he's a multi-inning reliever. We use him all over the place. But let's get that fastball. Let's get some craziness. Pair him up with Pete Fairbanks, and that is a terrifying oh, combo. Yeah. Nobody's, everybody, like, nobody wants that smoke right there. Um, yeah, bring on bring on the wild thing. Plus, in this day and age with, with you know, Edwin Diaz, and Narcos and like everybody finding how awesome like a really good closer entrance is or Felix Bautista in Baltimore with the uh, Omar whistle. I think the wild thing entrance would be would be killer right now. I got to agree. I think he would be a lot of fun on the raise. I think he was definitely in contention for for my pick. Um, Yeah. What about you, Brett? I am going to go with Willie Mays Hayes. Uh, I think the Rays have a type for this type of player. He's athletic, can play well in the outfield. He can run a lot. Um, I think it's similar to the acquisition they just made, bringing in Jose Siri from the Houston Astros. Uh, I talked about this on the last Raise Your Voice, but it feels like the Rays have a type with these players, and Willie Mays Hayes fits that bill. I think they can get him on the cheap, and I think he can, you know, sure up the roster as maybe a, a fourth or fifth outfielder, maybe the last guy on the roster, but you know, the Rays will give him up his at bats. They'll use him as a pinch runner. They'll bring him in in big situations and they'll probably come up with a big hit here or there. Cause he showed uh, that he's got some pop in the bat and uh, I'd love to see that uh, with the race. 
Okay, well, I think we can safely say uh, that we would recommend watching Major League One twice in a row rather than watching Major League Two. Um, if you must, definitely give yourself a little bit of time in between because it is simply just a slog fest to get through and recycles both the best and worst parts of the original. Um, so with that, we have been Who's On Worst, giving you the sage wisdom of what baseball movies to not watch uh, or to hate watch or to, I don't know, defend your favorites against our opinions because some of you guys have really liked some of the terrible, terrible stuff we've watched. I saw a comment the other day where somebody was saying how The Scout was their favorite baseball movie and I almost burned Twitter to the ground. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think there's room for different opinions, but some of those opinions are invariably going to be wrong. Um, so if you like our opinions, which are the right ones, uh, subscribe, tell your friends, give us ratings. I don't know how this podcast stuff works. Just keep listening to us. Uh, and with that, I have been Ashley, with me is always Darby and Brett, and we are Who's On Worst. Until next time, bye!